I do love the tribe. I'm not embarrassed of that, even though maybe I should be to the degree that none of my children have ever missed a tribe football game. Um, and two of them were born in September, so be impressed by that alone. Um, but I think we all love the tribe for different reasons, those of us that love it. And I had a roommate in college that loved William and Mary because of the history. And um, she was a history major. I still don't know that really anything about the history of William and Mary. I never took a history class here, but she would tell me things a lot about the history, and I was supposed to be impressed, but I wasn't. And so she loved history so much that she became a tour guide at the Wren Building. Like, not a tour guide like that talks to incoming students about how great William & Mary is, a tour guide that just talks about the history of the Wren Building to random tourists that come to Williamsburg. So this was her thing. And she would come home and tell me some of the things she was learning about the Wren Building. And so one of the things, I don't know if you knew, there was a crypt in the basement of the round building. You don't know about this. And there evidently are random people buried. Not random. There are people buried there that are probably important. But they had to seal off the crypt. Do you know this? Because there's grave robbing that evidently was a thing. So people would go down there and, I don't go in there and steal stuff from the graves, from the coffins. I don't want to really think about it. But evidently that was a thing. So they sealed it off. And so she's telling me this, and I'm kind of listening, but not really. And, you know, but she came to a lot of sporting events with me that she never really was interested in or understood. So I felt like I could listen to her talk about this. And then she said something that caught my attention. She said, there is a rumor that you can access the crypt in the basement of the Wren building through the steam tunnels that go underneath all of old campus. I said, wait, tell me more. What are these steam tunnels and where do they go and how do I access them? She said, well... Um, yeah, that's all I know. There's a rumor going around that you can get in through the steam tunnels. And you may think I just graduated a couple years ago, but I'm going to date myself severely right now by telling you that when I was at William & Mary, there was no internet. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's shocking. I know there was no internet at all. So I could not Google steam tunnels under the campus. I could not figure out where they were. There was no social media at all. None of us had cell phones of any kind. So we could not um, figure out who has been in these. I was in a sorority. I asked around. I did not find anyone who actually knew how to get into the steam tunnels or where they went. So I felt like it was my academic responsibility to do some on-site research. And I gathered a team of people who were willing to enter in with me into this really um, required, I felt like I was serving the community of William & Mary by figuring out, could you actually access the Crypt of the Run building from these steam tunnels? So I'm mindful that I'm being recorded right now. So I will mention that we decided as a group that we would not break and enter anywhere. So if the doors were locked or if there was some sort of grate that had a padlock on it, we weren't going to break anything. And if it said no trespassing, we were not going to trespass. But if there were some entrances, manhole covers, different grates on the ground that were not marked no trespassing or were not locked, we would take that as an invitation for educational um, investigation. So off we went and we got into some of these tunnels. So there's, I had a PowerPoint. So this is my friend Dave. I won't name his last name just for, you know, in case anyone cares that this may have or not have been illegal. Um, this is one of the greats that we got in. Now again, we had no cell phones, so we actually had cameras. So be impressed that we had cameras. And you can see he's actually holding a flashlight because again, no camera, no flashlight on your phone, and steam tunnels are not lit. So the problem with entering here 
was that you could not get out once you got in. It took two people to lift the grate and flip it that way. And But once you were underneath, you can go to the next slide. And these are embarrassing. This is from my roommate's scrapbook. Again, no digital copy to this. So that is me. And that's my friend Lisa. And this is the stairway that we had to walk down once we got under that grate. The problem was you had no leverage to push it open. So once you were in, you had to have people that stayed above ground to lift it once you came back. And again, no cell phones. So we had to time it. So we would go in, and then we would have to say, okay, in 30 minutes, everyone sync up. We're going to come back, knock on this grate from below, and you better be here to lift it up, hoping that maybe no... um, let's just say campus personnel were around the grate at the time when we're knocking. So this is us under, and this is kind of what the steam tunnels looked like underneath. And um, Lisa's there, and this is the triumphant moment. This is the crypt at William & Mary. So be impressed that we found it. Because it wasn't easy, because this is what happens. The steam tunnels are like a corn maze. So they're not like straight and then take a right at the Wren building. You know, that's not how it was. So we were underneath... And we would come to these manhole covers, and half of us, three of us were underneath the ground, three of us were above ground, and we would push little pieces of paper up through, we had a lot of time on our hands, we would push little pieces of paper up through the manhole covers, and then the people that were above ground would pick it up and like write down where we were and push it, it's archaic, no technology, push it back down, and we would look at it and say, oh, we're by Tucker, we're nowhere near where we need to be, we need to go this way or whatever. And so we, get, we finally get there. I mean, I can't tell you how many nights we spent doing this. Embarrassing. But we finally get there, and we take this picture. And, and that, this is where the story it takes, it takes a nasty turn. So we're there. We take the picture, and then we start hearing this noise in the steam tunnels. And we thought, that's strange. We haven't heard that. We've been in here like three times and never heard that. And then the steam tunnels start filling with, you guessed it, steam. And why we didn't anticipate that, I do not know. They're called steam tunnels. You think that we would know that they might fill with steam. So they filled with steam to the point where you could barely see, like being in fog. And I'm not one prone to alarm, but at this point I'm thinking we should probably try to get out while we can still see. Well, the steam got thicker and thicker and thicker where we had left markings of like which way to turn and how to get back, and we could not see any of those markings. And the steam tunnels are not um, all open. Like, we had to crawl at points. We're knocking our heads into things, getting caught in wires. My friend Lisa, she said I could share this. She actually burned the back of her leg, climbing over a pipe where some of the insulation had come off through her jeans. Now, granted, skinny jeans had not been invented, so this was some thick, loose denim. But still, through the denim to her skin, she had a third-degree burn. And so we're trying to get out of the steam tunnels. And now we've realized we have missed our cutoff time, like by a a long shot. And so we don't even know where we're supposed to go. And then, to make matters a little bit worse, I start feeling like I can't really breathe real well. And I had asthma as a child. Anyone asthma? Anyone? Oh, Zachary, of course. Um, I don't know if that was developing. That might be embarrassing to admit. But I had childhood asthma. I had an asthma attack. It wasn't like I carried an inhaler with me. And so I'm trying to play it cool, as you do in these situations, where I'm like, I'm fine. I'm so fine. And then, evidently, I, I went unconscious. And now this story is being recalled to me from my roommate, Lisa, who I um, just talked to about this. And she's like, yeah, we basically dragged you out. Dave was crying. It turned into a nightmare. Um, I bet she was also crying, but she does not tell that part of the story, and Dave was not available for comment. But 
So we eventually get out. I don't really remember any of that part. We get out of the steam tunnels. We're sweaty. We're gross. We're covered in mud. And we had to use an alternative exit because they, we had missed our cutoff time. So we, there are some entrances in dorms. And so we went out through this other exit that took us literally another hour to get out. Please don't do this or get in trouble because of me sharing this story. And so we, get, we eventually get out. We meet up our friends. They're freaking out about, like, what happened to us, where we were. And, again, no cell phone, so we can't tell them we went out another exit. So we just go back to the house and hope that they're eventually going to meet us back there. So we meet back. And to make a long story short, we never made it back to the steam tunnels again. The other group never made it to the crypt because they replaced the HVAC units in and on old campus that year. What are the chances? And they redid the Wren courtyard so we couldn't get into that grate. So it's one of those stories, it ends terribly, right? Everyone's looking at me like, yeah, it's terrible. Why did you share that story? It's terrible. The reason I share that story is because Isaiah shared or told me to speak on a parable that has a terrible ending as well. No offense, Isaiah. It does have a terrible ending. And so the question is, like, I don't really like hearing stories like that that kind of end flat. Have you ever, like, went to a movie and the ending is just totally unsatisfying? Like, the couple doesn't end up together. The hero doesn't triumph. I feel like they try to be artsy with those. Sometimes the worst is, like, a TV series. Like, you watch the finale and it's, like, falls flat and you feel like you've wasted, like, half your life watching this for years and years. And then it's, like... No, that's not how it was supposed to end. Like, that's not the triumphant ending I was looking for. It was kind of like when the Patriots came back and won that Super Bowl a few years ago. But that's totally another story that I could really talk about much more. But this, this parable we're going to read tonight has one of those. And I wanted to warn you about it because there's purpose in it. But this, there's this idea of, like, why in the world did Jesus tell this story with the terrible ending? And so we're going to read it together. And it's in Matthew 18. And that is, like, kind of blurry. So I would not recommend reading that. You might want to just look on your phone or if you brought a Bible. It starts Matthew 18, and this starts in verse 21. And it says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often when my brother will sin against me, and I forgive him, as many as seven times? And so Peter's like one of my favorites, because he's not afraid to ask the question. He's asking a where's the line type question. So he really could be asking anything, like how patient do I exactly have to be? Like how many times do I have to be patient? I think the only reason he asks about forgiveness here is because right before this, Jesus had talked about how to handle conflict, um, because sometimes conflict happens, shockingly. But so Jesus had just talked about that. So that's why I think Peter's thinking about forgiveness, but he could be asking, like, how much money do I have to give to be considered generous, or how, you know, how many times do I have to deal with that annoying person before I just ignore them and act like I don't know them? Like, it could have been any of that, but Peter's not afraid to ask the question. He knows Jesus pretty well at this point. He's walked on water. Like, impressive things have happened, and so he asks this question, like, where's the line? Because Peter is a doer. Peter's a leader. Peter wants to be out front, and he says seven times when the kind of standard at that point was three times, which is kind of crazy that they had standards of how many times you would have to forgive people. But that's the kind of religious society that they lived in. The Pharisees said three times. And then after that, you do what you want. But three times was the standard. And so Peter is like more than doubling it, which I think is kind of impressive. Is it seven times? Is it seven times? Like Peter's like, they're all taking the class pass fail. I'm going to get an A. Like what do I need to get the A? Is it seven and this is what Jesus says to him. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And in some translations, it says 70 times seven times. And so what Jesus is really saying is an infinite amount of times. And so you've got to think that Peter's face kind of sunk. Like, what? 
Like, I, I think Peter's thinking, Jesus has raised this standard. Peter has heard the Sermon on the Mount. Peter's probably thinking, I know Jesus is saying we need to be more loving. We need to be different than what the Pharisees are doing. But this seems crazy. And so then Jesus tells this parable. It doesn't end well, just prep. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owned him 10,000 talents. That equals roughly $7 billion in our, like roughly, that would what it would be today, $7 billion. And since he could not pay, obviously, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Okay, so we could end here, and this would be triumphant, right? I could have ended my steam tunnel story, and we made it to the crypt. It was awesome, and, you know, just ended it there. That's triumph. But see, this isn't where the story ends. You could give a whole talk just on that, the debt forgiven. That's a great talk, but we have to keep going. And this is what it says. But when that same servant went out, he found, implying he went out looking for one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, it's about $10,000. So that's not nothing. It's not $7 billion, but it's not like five bucks. Like, that's, that's a decent amount of money. And it says, in seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, I bet. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is intense. That's, that's not a good ending. It's like a total bad ending, actually. It's depressing. It's kind of like makes us think a little bit. Because Peter was asking a where's the line question, which should have an easy answer. Like seven times. What if Jesus said like ten? That would have been an easier thing to take than this, right? This parable. Because Peter's in asking a where's the line question, and Jesus is asking a where's your heart question. It's two totally different things. They don't really go together. And so before we really get into it, I'm going to go over a little bit. I want to define forgiveness. Because sometimes we can misunderstand what we're talking about when we define forgiveness incorrectly, and we can think Jesus is asking us to do something he's not. So I'm going to start with what forgiveness is not. Um, forgiveness is not, the first one is denying the severity of sin or the pain it causes. So when I ask, or when I forgive someone, I'm not saying, I forgive you, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Like, that doesn't hurt me. That never did hurt me. Um, it's, it's not saying that at all. And in fact, Jesus takes sin, like, and infinitely more intensely than we do. Like, Jesus is more upset about the pain that we're enduring than we are. And the the scriptures never minimize sin or never act like it's no big deal. And so, so that is not what forgiveness is. The second thing, forgiveness is not the absence of consequences for the offender. Jesus just talked about what you should do if someone offends you. And consequences actually in scripture, they're sometimes necessary, even helpful. So if someone were to murder someone, I can forgive them, but that does not mean that person should not go to jail. 
So you can forgive someone, but that does not excuse all the consequences that that person needs to face. And the third one I think is really, really important. And the third one is that forgiveness is not necessarily a reconciled relationship. So if someone harms me, I can forgive them, but that does not mean that I need to live in a relationship with them where I'm continuing to be harmed. That person is not repentant or does not acknowledge what they're doing. Um, then Jesus is not, forgiveness is not saying, I'm going to continually get beaten up by this person. That's not forgiveness at all. But forgiveness is, so this is the next one, forgiveness is, number one, resisting revenge. Um, which you would think would kind of be easy to do. But I have this fear. I don't know if you have this fear. I have this fear when I forgive someone that if I forgive them, they're not going to really know how bad it is what they did. Have you ever thought that? Well, if I say I forgive you, then you're going to think it was no big deal when it was a big deal. And so it's interesting. It says this. This is Romans 12, 19. It says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And so what God is saying here is you can forgive someone, and I'll handle what needs to happen. Like, you don't need to convince them of how wrong they were. Like, God will work that out. The second part of forgiveness is what we call releasing the offender. It means this sense of, like, we release people. We don't hold them to what happened. Um, our pastor, Travis, gave a great sermon about what it means to release the offender, and you can look that up on the website. But it's a sense of not holding them to it. But again, I don't want to get too caught up on forgiveness because I don't think this parable is really only about forgiveness. It could have, I mean, Peter could have really asked anything. He could have asked, um, how often do I love someone? How often do I have to do all these things? I think forgiveness was just the topic at hand. And so I often, I think for years, misinterpreted this parable and scriptures like it. So my interpretation used to always be, so I'm forgiven by God, so I better forgive other people. Like it's now required, like I'm better, I better man up or woman up and forgive people. There's a verse, uh, verse um, 1 John 4, 19, and it says, we love because God first loved us. And I always felt like, okay, I'm loved, so I better love people. Like, it's like I'm under this obligation. I better really try hard to love people. And I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever tried to force yourself to forgive someone or love someone that you do not want to. Um, give it a try sometime. It's an interesting um, pursuit because it's, we can try to perform. We can try to love people. We can try to be generous. We can try to forgive as Jesus forgives. There's a lot of scriptures that actually repeat that phrase, forgive as Jesus forgave, love as Jesus loved. But when we can't perform any longer, when we reach a point, wherever it is, or with whoever it is, that we can't perform any longer, we just kind of resort to pretending. We just kind of fake it. Like, I can say that I forgive Zachary, but no one really knows if I do or not, right? Like, but inside, I know it, if I'm really forgiving him or I'm not forgiving him. And our thoughts and our hearts kind of betray us. And so this is kind of burdensome. And it leads to this sense of guilt or shame. When we know that we're not really forgiving people, maybe we say we are, but we're not really doing it. And finally, if we're honest, which I'm all into honesty and authenticity, almost to the point of painfulness, but I think it's so important that we get honest, we get authentic, we get to the point where we realize that forgiving as Jesus forgives is impossible. That really forgiving from the heart as Jesus forgives is impossible. And the great thing is that the disciples get there in the next chapter, in chapter 19. In Matthew 19, 25, the disciples actually say to Jesus, 
who then can be saved? Like, how in the world are we going to get to do this? And this is what he, how he responds. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And it's as if Jesus is saying, I love it, it says, Jesus looked at them and said, because I think Jesus is thrilled they've finally gotten it. They've finally gotten, Jesus is saying to them, it is impossible for you. That's, we're finally at a place of authenticity. We're finally being honest. We're finally not acting like we're someone we're not. We're finally being authentic. And Jesus is saying, that's exactly why I'm here. Because it is impossible. It is impossible. And see, this is the good news. And I bet you're thinking, like, I'm glad she's getting there to something good. Because this is the really good part. And this is what actually makes Christianity totally unique from all other world religions. I was actually a religion major here at William & Mary, so I actually did a lot of studying them before I even knew Jesus, studying world religions, which was an interesting exercise. But this is really what makes Christianity unique. Because Jesus did not come to establish a new, higher moral core um, code that we were all going to have to achieve. That wasn't the point. Jesus came to say, I want to be in this dynamic relationship with you where I will transform you into a new person. My power, my spirit is actually going to live inside you, and I'm going to give you a totally new heart. I'm gonna, I am going to do a miraculous work in your life. I'm going to do the impossible in your life. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart, from you, your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. So the point of this parable is not. Jesus forgave, so you better forgive. The point is when we remember and understand that Jesus has forgiven us a $7 billion debt, we will be empowered to forgive other people. We will be changed. It will be transforming. We will have a new heart ready and willing and overflowing with the forgiveness that Jesus has poured out into our lives. See, that is the gospel. That's what makes Christianity different. It's not that here's a new standard that you can achieve so that we are accepted. It's the exact opposite, actually. Timothy Keller describes the gospel this way. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Seven billion dollars worth. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And I've believed I'm very sinful. More than I've ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Than we ever dared hope. And when that sinks, that truth sinks deep into who we are, then we are transformed by the power of God at work in us. And do you know who got this, who finally got this? Peter. Peter, of all people, got this. And we know he got it. We know he was transformed by the gospel. Because in 2 Peter 1.3, he writes this. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. Through this relationship, through knowing Christ personally in an authentic, real relationship, we have the power we need to live a godly life. That's where the power's from. Ephesians 3.20 is a famous scripture. It's read a lot of, it's read often, but I think some of it's missed. It says, now to him 
who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. So a lot of people read the first part of that. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, like God is working out there somewhere to do these unimaginable things. He's doing amazing things out there, but we forget the second part of the verse. According to his power that is at work within us. Not just out there working, he's working in us. Colossians 1.29 says this, To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Christ working in me to transform me. So when we're struggling to forgive or love or be patient or generous or whatever our struggle is in the moment, and there'll be one in the moment, we don't need to beat ourselves up. We don't need to have this kind of like, I need to try harder. I must stir it up from within. I really need to be more loving. Instead, we need to take it as a warning sign to us that we've forgotten the gospel. We've forgotten that we've been forgiven a $7 billion debt. If we're struggling, it means we've forgotten something. We need to remember. Remember that we're loved. Remember that we're forgiven. Remember the power available to us that's at work within us right now. And we need to remember that the impossible is really possible with God. And that's why Jesus tells this terrible, this, well, this great parable with a terrible ending. It's because we forget we are the unforgiving servant, and we end up imprisoned and trapped by unforgiveness or not loving people or whatever it is. And we think that this is normal. We think it's normal. And you'll hear people say this. It's so fatalistic. Well, this is just how I am. Like, I'm just an anxious person, or I'm just a person who struggles to forgive. I actually heard people, I just don't like people. Like, people say this kind of stuff, like, very fatalistically. And it's crazy because the whole parable is about this, it has this terrible ending because we're surprised by the ending. Because when we read this parable, we expect that the servant would forgive other people, right? It's shocking that he doesn't. It's a shocking twist to the story that... He's forgiven the $7 billion debt, and then he won't forgive someone else. It's shocking to us. So what the parable teaches us is that we should live in hopeful expectation that that kind of transformation can actually happen in our lives. We should live with that hope. There's a quote by Charles Spurgeon that I love about forgiveness, and he, it's, he says this. He says, to be forgiven is such sweetness that honey is tasteless in comparison with it. But yet there is one thing sweeter still, and that is to forgive. As it is more blessed to give than to receive, so to forgive rises a stage higher in experience than to be forgiven. And the reason that's true, at least for me, is because the experience of forgiving others when we never thought we could, the experience of being able to be patient with someone or this experience of being willing and, and ready to love people that are difficult to love, when we experience that, we realize transformation is really possible, that the impossible is possible, that we really can be freed from the chains of unforgiveness, from anger, from addiction, from bitterness, from insecurity, from anxiety, from whatever it is. This parable shows us not only that it, it's possible, but that we should expect it. We should live expectant lives. And that brings us to hope. 
We should live lives hopeful about transformation. I'm going to end with a song from one of my favorite bands, and I don't know if it's an old person band, but it's called Every Giant Will Fall, and it's by Ren Collective. Shadows steal the